0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. So here's something that I don't often get to say. I am currently sitting across the table from the woman who Forbes magazine deemed the second most powerful woman in the world Twice, not just once, but (laughs) twice. I am with Sheila Bair. And if you don't recognize her by name, then you will remember what she did for sure. Sheila was the FDIC chair, chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation from 2006 to 2011, which means she's the one who steered the agency through the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. She was responsible for the safekeeping of $6 trillion in American savings. Her leadership earned her the JFK Library's Profiles in Courage Award, her two-time title as the second most powerful woman in the world, and nicknames like... The new sheriff of Wall Street. <laughs> I, I hope they gave you a gold star to go along car, with that yeah. one. <laughs> she currently serves on a number of corporate and fintech boards while continuing her advocacy for common sense policies to promote financial system stability and Responsible Lending Practices, and she's just a delight to talk to, and I'm happy that you're here. Well,
2: thanks. I'm really pleased to be here.
1: Yeah, so you have been in New York for a couple of days. Right, right. You are here to... Spread the word about one of those fintechs that right. you're working with. So this
2: is a company. It's a Kansas company. I'm from Kansas originally, and uh, they reached out to me a few years ago. They've got a really interesting business model. Uh, they basically help people uh, manage their 401k accounts. They make sure that their uh, their asset allocation is is appropriate given their age and how far away they are to when they would like some more financial freedom, and also to make sure that they're in the lowest cost uh, fee. And uh, the lowest cost fund in terms of fees, and uh, it's very transparent pricing. It's ten dollars a month, very affordable for just about everybody. And it's really a, an unserved market segment because generally, professional financial advisors can't give you services, you know, in, in a way that's economically efficient for you unless you have a lot of money. So they're trying to fill that void. And uh, I just, I you know, I thought it what they were trying to do was was important. So I, I decided to try to help them. It's a company called Bloom. It's called Bloom, right, with with three O's.
1: <laughs> and what I think is interesting about this is that it's plan agnostic. So yes, it no is. matter what 401k you have that's through right. whatever employer or whatever provider, thats right it sort of layers on top and can give you advice. It
2: can give you advice. That's right. So they don't ask for your money. They don't want your money. They don't try to sell you funds or products. are completely unconflicted. Wherever your 401k is, they will go there and take a look at it and analyze it for you to let you know what they're in their professional opinion, if you have the right resource allocation, if you're in the funds that are the lowest cost and then uh, give you that analysis. And if you like what they do, they'll make the transactions for you and then monitor your account on an ongoing basis.
1: But you can actually get the analysis for, for free. free. You right. don't have to that's sign exactly up. Right. So if you're yeah. listening and you want to know if your 401k is doing the job as best as it could right. by putting you into the lowest cost investments, right. you can run a Bloom analysis you can. and then not pay for it. Not pay for it at all. No, okay. it's completely free. All right. Well, that's good. We like free. <laughs> we, we do like free. I want to go back to 2008 and talk about the financial crisis. We all have the picture in our mind. At least I have the picture in my mind of President Obama and Hillary Clinton when we got Osama bin Laden and seeing them in the war room, watching everything that went on and seeing almost the moment that it happened. We don't have that picture of being in the room where it happened for the financial crisis, but you were in the room. So tell us what, what was that like and, and what did you have to do to help steer the country out of trouble?
2: Right. So uh, it's, it's a really good question and it was more of a, you know, a slow erosion. And then when the Lehman brothers uh, bankruptcy occurred, we really had a, a significant shock to the system. And, um, so there wasn't that one seminal moment. There were a lot of a lot of moments where things were very tense, but I think for the FDIC's part, uh we really just stayed focused on our mission, which was to protect insured depositors. So we were very focused on the people who use the banks, make sure they maintain confidence in the banking system. Also, we were very concerned about homeowners and had for quite some time had advocated for stronger lending practices. We saw early on these subprime mortgages and with their Payment resets and, and very high debt to income ratios, a lot of very bad features. And, um, so we really pushed, again, I think consistent with our identification of the people who use the banks to try to get some homeowner relief. And so I think by, by staying focused on those public policy goals, we kind of filtered out the rest of the chatter. And I think that's where we, we should have focused and did so successfully. Nobody lost a penny of insured deposits. We had, you know, nearly 400 bank failures while I was there. Nobody had to wait more than one business day to get access to their money, even if their bank failed, their insured money. So I'm very proud of that. I think the agency really did an amazing job. And we didn't do as much as I would have liked on mortgage relief, but I think several hundred thousand people were able to keep their homes because of our efforts and advocacy. And so I'm proud of that, too.
1: As you look at what's happening today, do you think that we learned as consumers, as investors, as a society, the lessons of the financial crisis? And what were yeah. those lessons in yeah. your mind?
2: No, I don't think we have. I think um, there are a lot of lessons. Um, and bridal greed is one. That's always a, a constant theme with the financial crisis. You know, kind of a subset of that is using too much borrowed money, trying to use a little leverage to juice up your returns. That's very short-term thinking. Short-termism Was another lesson. I'm not sure. We've learned uh, not borrowing more uh, than you can pay back, and that was true for households. That was also true for banks. Banks were highly leveraged, and that was one of the reasons so many got into trouble. When the crisis occurred, they didn't have the balance sheet capacity to absorb losses Once the housing market turned and we saw escalating a defaults on mortgages. So, no, I'm not sure we have. I think we have reformed the system somewhat. There's a lot more capital in banks now, so they are less reliant on borrowed money, but they're still pretty reliant on borrowed money. But, you know, the minimum standard is only 5 percent capital, so 95 percent of their operations can be funded with borrowed money. I still think that is uh, too much leverage for banks. Consumers, I think, learned for a while, uh, and we saw a lot of deleveraging, so reduction in debt levels. We saw an increase in savings rates, but we're seeing a reversal of that now. We're seeing the consumer debt go up. We're seeing the savings rates goes down, and that also suggests that, um, you know, memories can be too short. I, I do think in interest rate policy, and I know that the Fed has just been heroic in trying to, you know, stimulate the economy through monetary policy, but the, problem with doing that is basically you're trying to stimulate the economy by making it cheap to borrow. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit about taking the sip out of the same bottle and so trying to get economic growth going again by encouraging people to borrow because interest rates are low. It's not sustainable. What we need is real wage growth and that's not what we've seen in this recovery.
1: You know, it's so interesting. I get as I'm sure you do, I get a lot of economic news releases from yeah. various think tanks and and um and data firms and I got one on September 12th and I remember it because I filed it away and it it pointed out that we had finally recaptured the income lost since the recession right. yeah and I think a lot of people think about the recession think about the fact that the government said the recession was over in June of 2009 and don't realize that real wages continued to fall for the vast majority of people in this country from 2011 all the way to 2013. It wasn't yeah. until 2014 that we finally started, got
2: a bump. Around. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it, it's been very frustrating. And I do think there are fiscal po- – I think you, you can't deal with that with the monetary policy. There are fiscal policies – that we could have pursued, should be pursuing. Even now with tax reform, I think, uh, you know, addressing aspects of the tax code that really disadvantaged working families, I don't think we're fundamentally addressing those, at least in the bills that we're seeing uh, wind through the system now. And, you know, things like uh, infrastructure spending, I think, can help. We need it anyway. You know, I think that's another thing. Businesses, when they decide whether to locate in a country – they will look at the tax environment, but they'll look at the infrastructure, too. All and they have to so do clunky. is drive
1: down 52nd <laughs> I <know. laughs> Street. I mean, please, there's it so is, many potholes. It is.
2: It's just, you know, bridges, you know, ports, you know, the whole airports, everything. We are so far behind. And so those are the kinds of things I wish, you know, we really would be focusing on. uh And we're not. And uh But you know, I think monetary policy has, to some extent, been used as a crutch because it kind of kept us blubbering along. But the, you know, growth has not been very robust, and it's been very unevenly distributed. So, but now, unfortunately, uh, there's more action on the fiscal side, but I'm not sure it's gonna isn't particularly constructive in how it's being done. <laughs>
1: My attitude has always been, I can't change the economy, but I can change my own personal economy. And that's what I try to get listeners of this show to do and to understand. So as you look at consumer behavior right now, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing credit card debt tick up, we're seeing credit card delinquencies tick up, we're seeing people take out more from their homes again in the form of home equity loans. Are
2: we over borrowing again? Yeah. I think we're, we're, we're in, yes, we're certainly going that direction. Consumer debt is a percentage of GDP. Gross domestic product is still significantly below where it was in 2007 when, 2008 when it really uh, hit its apex. But, um, it's still, it's trending that way. It's a troubling trend. And, you know, it's okay for, Consumer credit to increase is okay if that's being done in tandem with rising wages. So that way we know that the income is there to repay the debt. But when consumer credit outpaces wage income, which it has been doing, then you have an unsustainable economic growth model. Uh, So, yeah, I do worry about it. And, again, I think real wage growth is is absolutely where Washington uh, needs to be focused. And for households, in terms of things they can control to the extent they have – Money they can save. They should maintain that cushion because in the kind of market system we have, you always have cycles and it's good to have some money to fall back on. Don't spend all your income and then don't borrow to spend more. Just don't do it because you will regret it if we get into another recession. How much
1: debt is too much debt? If you look at debt to income as a percentage of what you're bringing in, what is a, what's a level at which you feel comfortable?
2: well we're we only have mortgage debt we that's the only debt we have uh my parents were depression europe you know they they didn't even borrow for houses. I mean they just abhorred debt. We borrow for uh home ownership, but that's the only kind of debt we have. I tell people you know that I have a take out ten rule, so save if you have you can do it and try to do it, save at least ten percent of your income and if you certainly if you have tax advantage accounts like four oh one ks and employer matches, you should use those. Um, and then don't borrow unless it's something you really need and then make sure you have the disposable income to, to pay it back. And you need to look at your, you know, people's individual budgets are all different. But, you know, be realistic about the kind of money you like to spend on going out to eat or vacations or whatever and take that out and, and look what's, you know, what's left there to service debt. And again, so don't borrow if you can't afford it. And in any event, even if you can't afford it, don't borrow if you don't need to do it, right? I want to come
1: back to you and your Depression-era parents okay. in
2: just a second. But before
1: we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live these lives that we are working so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Sheila Bair. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So you mentioned you were raised by parents who were of the depression. Right. What did they do to you, say to you? How did you become so smart
2: about this stuff? Right. Right. Well, it was over a period of years. I wasn't always smart about it. <laughs> I think there was a period in my life uh, when I was in law school, I got my first credit card and really got it in over my head. I got, got multiple credit cards, actually, because of the marketing and the ease with which uh, you could get a credit card. And got myself in trouble pretty quickly, but got myself straightened out. And I've had a one credit card rule ever since then. So I think they just instilled in me a good sense of thrift and preparing for the future. I mean, they had gone through this horrific depression, and my mother... They're first generation, uh, college, uh, students. My dad's a doctor. My mother's a nurse. And, um, they had, uh, they, but they grew up in very, uh, financially difficult circumstances and then went through this horrible depression as small children. Obviously it gave, had made a huge impact on them. So being prepared for the worst and, you know, sometimes you can fall, you can be a little bit too much. That makes you a little too risk averse. But I think it's better to, uh, err on the side of caution and save what you can and have that cushion. You know, it's also just psychologically. I mean, you look at people if they suffer from depression or if their families that are having difficulties. So much of it ties back to money and uncertainty and fear that you don't have financial security. And so, from a peace of mind perspective, too, saving money is what you can saving it early, getting the benefits of compounding working for you. It has not just in the sense of having financial freedom, but psychological peace of mind. I think it's so important. I totally agree. I mean, I've talked often on this show
1: about how after I got divorced – saving money was the only thing that made me feel safe. Yeah. You know, yeah. just just being able to check in on the balances in the bank and yeah, know absolutely. that it was there.
2: It's reassuring. And I said my advice when I, I've written children's books, and I, I encourage parents to have um, clear piggy banks so the kids can see the money pile up. And also when they give them the allowance. So if their allowance is a dollar, do another 25 cents and it goes directly into the piggy banks. They can spend the dollar, but there's another 25 that has to go, or 10 cents or whatever it might be. I think if the kids can watch it grow, um, they, they get that same on a, on a you know and for a small child they get that kind of same sensation of pride that they're growing their money it gets harder as they become
1: teenagers though because money has become so invisible i mean when yeah, i was that's true. a teenager i had a passbook savings account i yep. would get on my bike i would take my babysitting money to the bank and yep. i would put it in and they would stamp my passbook right you know this doesn't happen my kids have venmo
2: yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and,
1: and money through Venmo goes so quickly. Yeah, you've got a true. child who's 17. She's 17, right. And you have yeah. an, another one who's older. Yes. How yes.
2: have you made them smart about money? Right, right. So we follow the same rules. So that each week when they got their allowance, a part of it would go into savings. And once it accumulated, it, it went into the bank. And so they did watch their bank account balances grow. And so we pay the allowance in cash. And actually, I still give my daughter her allowance in cash, and she spends some of it and saves some of it. And uh, so I think uh, that tangibility has had, has had some advantages. But you're right. Money's becoming more and more invisible, but it's still cash there. And I think to the extent, just to your point of, of making it tangible for kids, if parents can give them the cash and separate it that we have, and then the savings goes into the bank where basically you're not going to touch it, it's a good early early lesson to learn. I know that...
1: um since you left the FDIC, you've done a couple of things. You yeah. worked at Washington College. You ran yes. Washington <laughs> College. Worked at is a huge understatement. Yeah. And one of the things that you did while you were there was to raise some money to pay back student loans for your current students. Can yes. you, can you, yeah. you called it yeah. a Day of the Debt, which yeah. I think is <laughs> a, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, both. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, it was a little double entendre, Damn the Debt, uh, D-A-M, not, no, no end behind it, but. When I got there, I really wanted to tackle debt. It's a great school, a great college. I, I love the years I had there. But our debt levels, were a little. they were higher than, than the national average, and that bothered me. And so we initiated some what I call front-end scholarship programs. So one was called Georgia's Brigade for Very Low-Income Students, a, a complete... Uh, free ride except for incidentals, um and some other, uh, we froze tuition. So we did a lot of things on the front end, but I realized, to get those debt levels down, but I realized it was going to take four years to flow through where we'd actually see results from our graduates. And then we had students here that, you know, had already been through, had accumulated a lot of debt. So, in partnership with Bloom and a lot of other uh, very generous uh, donors, we raised money called Damn the Debt. A very simple program. Every dollar that was given went directly to pay down our students' federal debt. And uh, the two years I was there, we were able to pay the debt down by about 10%, which was about like $3,500 per student. So it was not insignificant. And if, if you if then add the savings by paying down that principal, they weren't paying interest on that money either. So it was north of four thousand in terms of the total benefit. That was a nice going away president, and also just by announcing the program, I was also all about retention and graduation rates. So giving them an extra incentive to graduate, so they would have this benefit, and, if, and a final advantage of the program was if if you, for instance, if an employer helps pay down debt after they graduate, it's taxable income. But since this was just built in as a senior scholarship, it, we could do it as a scholarship, so it wasn't didn't have tax ramifications for the
1: students. So clearly, student loan debt is something that you've studied and and right. yes. and you've you've yes. you've dug in. Yeah. What do you say to students and their parents who are evaluating where am I going to go to school? Mm-hmm. How much am I going to borrow? What what's the smart way to do that these yeah. days?
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's a really good question. So they should look – I think all schools um, – obviously, the first thing is to look at the academic program. Is it a good quality academic program? Does it have strengths if they, if their child already knows what they want to study? Do they, they have academic programs that, that meet that? So those are all very important. But then look at outcomes, too. What are the graduation rates? What are the job placement rates? A lot of schools publish that now. They should publish that. And then what's the average debt load at the school? and uh make sure you fully explore um scholarships that are available frequently the you know the kind of the, the sticker price that's disclosed is not there's a lot of scho- ability to get scholarships to lower that and so uh fully explore that if you can save save start when your child is born start saving put it in a 529 or an ESA there're tremendous tax advantages to doing that get your parents the grandparents to 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 save money too save what you can reduce the need to borrow. And then I think for freshmen, I'm not a big fan of working a lot, but I think certainly summer jobs or in the second year, they're academically uh, capable of having a, a part-time job, just a few hours a week. I think that's important to help, uh, make sure that you minimize the need to borrow. And that's the way it used to be, right? Right, and to, that's how you'd pay for college. You wouldn't borrow. There's a combination of savings and work and...
1: And you and feel so. like you have a stake in it and you're more exactly. likely to get out in that yeah. four years. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, I started this Show by mentioning that Forbes twice named you the <laughs> second most powerful woman in the world. What's your advice for other women mm. as they are forging their careers and their paths into yeah. leadership?
2: Well, understand who you are, what you want to accomplish, what your core values are, uh, what kind of job will make you feel good about yourself, then, and you will not, frequently you will not find the perfect job, but whatever job, however you get started on your path, do it well. Even if it's a job you end up hating, do it well, because if you do it well, people will notice and more opportunities will open up. I think also speak up. Don't be obnoxious about it, but take credit and don't let others take credit. I see uh, that happen a lot. I Even at my age, I joke, uh, you mentioned the Sheriffs of Wall Street. That was a Time Magazine piece that was done with me and Elizabeth Warren and Mary Shapiro. And when I was being interviewed for that time piece, um, this came up and I said, I can't tell you even now the number of times I've been in a meeting dominated by men and I will say something and there's dead silence. 10 minutes later, some guy will say exactly the same thing. And oh boy, Joe, that's a really good point. So, you know, and what do you do, do? What do you do when You'll that say, happens? I just made that point. And if there's an, more importantly, if there's another woman in the room, the other woman should say, Sheila just made that point. I mean, you don't, have to agree with each other, you won't always agree with each other, but one thing we can all do for each other is stand up for our right to be heard and acknowledged and uh and I think frequently that that does not happen so um speak up, make sure you're speaking up intelligently, do your homework and and have good points to make, but you will and uh don't get hung up there's uh, it's better than it used to be, there's still a lot of gender discrimination out there, but you'll make yourself go crazy if you worry about it. Just always be prepared, do the best you can um You know, and if if people try to marginalize you or ignore you, then speak up. Fabulous,
1: Sheila Bair. Thank you so much.
2: I hope you'll come back the next
1: time you're in town, and we'll be right back with Kelly and your questions. And we're back. Kelly is with me in the studio. Hi, everyone. That was a woman you could look up
0: to, huh? Absolutely. And I loved her advice at the end, too, of when you said, what's your advice for other women who are forging their paths, pursuing leadership roles? And she says, you have to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot easier said than done. But I felt as I was listening to her and your guys' conversation, she really came through. Like, she's this woman who has accomplished so much for herself and for all of us. Yeah. But... She also was really transparent and got personal. And I love that authenticity.
1: Yeah. I've met her in person before, but never had a chance to really spend time with her. And we got lunch before the interview, which was terrific. So all good. All right. We have questions? We do. Our first question is from
0: Kathy. She writes, how do I find a financial planner that is right for me? I'm a single parent of two, one in college and one a junior in high school. I'm working two to three jobs to try and let my children graduate college with as little of debt as possible without having to take loans myself. I have a 401k and a Roth and want to make sure I have money invested wisely.
1: Wow. Well, first of all, Cappy, I mean, you're doing so much for these kids, two to three jobs to help them get through college without student loan debt. It's just, I mean, if I had a button where I would push it and we would hear applause, I would be pushing it for you because I think that this is really, really incredible. A couple of things. How do you find a financial planner that is right for you? There are a lot of different ways to go about this. You didn't say what those jobs are, but I would start with your colleagues and just ask for names of advisors that people that you know are working with happily. You want to get a short list of recommendations. You want to Sit down with three or four different advisors. Make sure that you understand their business model, how they get paid. Make sure that they are comfortable working with people like you, Make sure that you can actually have a conversation with them, an open, honest conversation with them. If you don't feel like you can talk to them, they're not the right planner for you. Check them out online. Use FINRA's broker check tool to make sure that there are no black marks in their backgrounds. And if you have trouble coming up with that shortlist to begin with, there are two associations that you can go to. The first is the Financial Planning Association. They're at fpanet.org, I believe. The second is NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, N-A-P-F-A dot org. And although I said two organizations, there's a third called the Garrett planning network, and there you'll actually find planners that are willing to work by the hour and charge by the hour if you'd rather structure the relationship that way. The second thing that I want to say to you, though, is that you mentioned you have a Roth and you have a 401k. Just do your best to ensure that you are putting enough into those accounts, that you're not so over-prioritizing college that you're skimping on your own retirement. Um, Your kids will be okay if they have to take out a small amount of student loans. I know that you're trying to avoid it, and I think that is so admirable. Um, But make sure that you're doing what you need to do for you, because particularly as a single woman, really, really important.
0: Thank you. And we'll do one more from Terry. Okay. My husband had a credit card account that he added me on years ago. He defaulted on the balance, and I was unaware of it until I got a collection notice in the mail. I know. I immediately set up payments on the account, and it is now on my credit report. What are the chances of having the creditor remove it? If it cannot be removed, can I write a comment explaining the situation, and will that
1: even make a difference? Slim to none on getting it removed because you're on the account. As far as writing a comment, yeah, you can write a comment and you can ask that it be attached to your file with all three credit bureaus. Will it make a difference? Probably not. Um, I know that's really sad to say, but I've talked to a lot of people in the industry through the years, and these comments on your reports, uh, I think they don't really matter all that much at all. What I would say that might make you feel a little bit better is that any information on your credit report becomes less important over time. And so We know that the period of time that matters the most is the most recent 24 months. So two years from now, although this information will not have fallen off your credit report, it will matter much, much less to any creditors that you're trying to do business with and in terms of your overall credit score. Excellent. Thank you, Jean. Sure. Thank you. And we've got a treat for everybody. We've got a Hayden Helps coming up. Hey, Hayden. Have a seat. Thanks. Good to be in the studio. It's nice to have you here. You look great. Thank you so much. Sure. happy the sun is out
3: today. Finally, a taste of it after like a couple weeks of the bleakness. Yeah,
1: absolutely. All right. So you've been helping people as usual. What do you have today? So today I helped Heather, one of our listeners. She said she loves her money.
3: And she's been having a problem with her local internet company. Her rate was a promo rate at first, forty-four twenty a month-ish. And now they're upping her to sixty-one ninety-nine a month. And it's happening gradually, but she wants to stop it from happening. She called and tried to get them to dial her back down to her original rate, but they said no, even when she threatened to change to Google Fiber, one of the competitors. Mm-hmm. So I called and talking to the representative, I was able to get her rate down to fifty four twenty a month for the next 12 months. So that was saving her about $5 a month from what she's currently paying. But then I was like, that's not enough. So I asked for more discounts. I said, is there anything you can do, you know, a credit, anything like that towards the account? The girl said, how about a $10 credit every month for the next 12 months? I said, absolutely. So that's now applied to her account, and she's going to be paying only 44 a month, which is saving her $16 a month for a year. Wow.
1: You know, what's impressive about this, first of all, is A, you asked for the credit, and they gave it to you. But beyond that, I think that people listening may say, well, you're saving her $16 a month. Big deal. But we have to remember with things that we pay for often – The savings can end up being as big as the savings on a really big item. So that's $16 a month. That's almost $200 a year. And that's a plane ticket. Absolutely. I mean, you know, $16 a month, it
3: could be a lot of things. Even I recently stopped eating out once a week and I'm saving about that much a month, which exactly $200 a year. You could go to
1: a big city from New York for less than that. Exactly. Exactly. So when would you suggest that Heather pick up the phone and call these people back again? Should she do it when that rate is about to expire? Make a calendar notice? Exactly. That's what I emailed her to do. Make a
3: calendar notice about a couple weeks before it's about to expire, maybe 11 and a half months from now, call back, um, you know, explain the situation. And I found something that's really helpful, too, is connecting with the representative on the fact that you don't want to pay more. Say, you know, no one likes to pay more for no reason, as you probably agree. And once you establish that connection, they put themselves in your
1: shoes and are more willing to help you, I found. Hayden Field, consumer reporter and amateur psychologist. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jean. And if you've got a consumer problem for Hayden Help, send it to us at jeanchatsky.com. Hayden will do her best to save you some money. Thanks to everybody for joining me today on Her Money to Sheila Bear for a fascinating conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes, please leave us a review. Reviews are important. It's not just that we want to know what you think. Hopefully what you think is nice and it'll get other people to tune into the show. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with Katherine Minshew of The Muse.